The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the timeless teaching of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. I wish that I could convey to you the impression of how loath I am to leave the part of the text that speaks of abounding grace, to go on to its work in us, but perhaps I can lay one more grain of worship on the seashore of that ocean of grace by plunging with fear and trembling into the practical object of that grace in the lives of believers. And if these words come to any who yet fear that they are not saved, let us ask, in the light of so much grace, how any could ever despair of mercy. Over a half a century ago, the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, then pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, saw the need to spread God's Word beyond the hearing of his local congregation. He started the radio outreach which has become known as Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible. The application of God's Word as taught by Dr. Barnhouse is as relevant today as when he first taught over the radio airwaves decades ago. The message we will be featuring on today's edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is entitled The Reign of Grace. In the classic movie The Adventures of Robin Hood, Prince John usurps the throne of King Richard. Robin Hood fights against this reign of oppression and terror as he tries to restore England's throne to its rightful ruler. If we are not careful, we can allow ourselves to be oppressively ruled by legalism, human effort, and self-righteousness. How can we learn to overthrow this tyranny? and rely upon the wonderful grace of God as the ruling principle in our lives. The scripture text for this edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is Romans chapter 5 and verses 20 and 21. Here again is Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse with a message entitled, The Reign of Grace. Through the Lord Jesus Christ we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We thank Thee for Thy grace and favor to our fathers in time past, to us as a nation, to us in our faithful churches, and to us in our individual lives. How kind Thou art, and how abundant are the manifestations of Thy grace. Wilt Thou bless the word to every listening heart in this hour? We ask it in the name and for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Today we come to Romans 5, 20 and 21. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, so that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness. If I have tarried so long on the first part of this text, it is because I feel a great sense of personal inadequacy when I confront the last half of the text. All of us may speak boldly when we talk about the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in bringing us salvation. We are also on very sure ground when we reach the fountainhead in the heart of God from which all this grace flows, and we can speak with the utmost certainty when we tell how the Holy Spirit was the effective executive officer of the Holy Trinity. 
in taking the grace of God and the work of Christ and applying it to our hearts. But the moment in which we begin to talk about this work in our own lives, our lips become heavy and our tongue seems to stammer. Oh, it is not difficult to say that we know that we have been effectively reached by the grace of God. It is not difficult to say that we have turned away from all other confidence and trust and, as best we know, have repudiated our sinful Adamic nature and have turned in utter abandon to the Lord Jesus Christ. We can joy and rejoice in our God. We can cry out with a loud voice that we know that the burden of sin has been removed. In a thousand ways, we can know and feel and testify that the Lord is our God and that he has given us the abundance of salvation and joy and that we know that we have passed from death unto life. This joy of the Lord is our strength. Yet it has also been the experience of the saints through all the ages that they themselves have never fulfilled any human part in the whole matter of salvation and the subsequent life of the Christian. This in itself is one more crown that is laid on the altar of the grace of God. But it is not pleasant to know that our hymn books contain such dirges as Look how we grovel here below, fond of these trifling toys. Our souls can neither rise nor go to seek eternal joys. Dear Lord, and shall we ever live at this poor dying rate? Our love to thee so faint, so small, Thy love to us so great? And the true Christian who has once tasted of the higher joys of salvation and known the triumph of being fully possessed by the Holy Spirit can never afterwards be truly satisfied with anything less. We will sing with Wesley how tedious and tasteless the hours when Jesus no longer I see. Sweet prospects, the birds and the flowers have all lost their sweetness to me. The fact is that though the work of Christ secures for us the practice of true holiness, it is the sad experience of most believers that their triumph is, at the best, intermittent. If I am to talk of practical holiness during the next score of studies, it must be understood at all times that even as St. Paul, so we must cry, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after. Here is one more illustration of the fact that a saint is not someone who has been able to live what men call a saintly life, but a saint is a person who has been redeemed by Christ and to whom has been credited the righteousness of Christ, totally irrespective of the triumph or defeat that may come in the life. When this is understood, we have laid the weights in the scales in such a way that the balance may be tipped against defeat and in favor of triumph. After I had completed all of the studies which I have presented on abounding sin and superabounding grace, I ran across a sermon preached on the text almost 150 years ago by Charles Simeon of Cambridge University, leader of the evangelical revival in the Church of England. His outline is highly significant and may serve to lead us into the practical application of these truths which now confront us. From eternity, he says, God determined to glorify his grace. For this end, he permitted sin to enter into the world. The publication of his law also promoted the same end. It served to show how awfully sin had abounded, and consequently to magnify that grace which destroyed sin. To this effect, the apostle speaks in the text and in the words preceding it. 
Look how sin has abounded. The transgression of Adam was of a very malignant nature. But sin spreads also over the whole world. It had, moreover, prevailed in every heart to an awful degree. It even took occasion from the holy law of God to rage the more. But God did not altogether abandon our wretched world, for where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Now, God determined that his grace should be victorious and that it should establish its throne on the ruins of the empire which sin had erected. For this purpose, God gave his son to be a second Adam. He laid on him the curse that was due to our iniquities. He enabled him to bring in everlasting righteousness. He accepted us in him as our new covenant head. He restores us through him to eternal life. And thus the superabundance of his grace is manifest in the object attained, in the method of attaining it, and in the advantages which flow from the method by which he achieved it. The destruction of man because of sin was certainly tremendous. Yet it was no more than should have been expected. The fallen angels had already heard that they would be banished from heaven. No wonder then if man was made a partaker of their misery. But how beyond all expectation was the recovery of man? How wonderful that he should be restored, while a superior order of beings were left to perish. How marvelous that man should be exalted to the throne of glory from which the sinning angels had been cast down. This was indeed a manifestation of the most abundant grace. But who could have thought that God would redeem us by sending his own son to die? Who would have imagined that God would make Christ the head of our new covenant and our representative? Who would have dreamed that God would remove the curse of sin by the death of that son? That he would accept sinners through the righteousness of Christ? That he would remedy by a second Adam what had been brought upon us by the first? No angel, let alone any man, would have ever thought of such a way of salvation. This was a discovery of grace that infinitely transcends the comprehension of any creature, even of that creature Lucifer, who was the apex of the pyramid, who sealed up the sum, who was full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. It was indeed God who was the architect of grace and the designer of our redemption. No creature mind could have drawn even one line of the plan of redemption. The infinite grace of God has been exhibited in many striking instances. Let us seek to become monuments of this mercy. Let us freely acknowledge how much sin has abounded in us, and yet expect through Christ abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness. The purpose of grace is present holiness in the life of the believer. That is the truth to which we have come and which we can no longer postpone. Grace abounded in order that grace might reign. And the reign of grace is to take place in the life of the believer. The reigning is for each one of us who has named the name of Christ. I must admit that I have read more of the writings of many men on this portion of Scripture than perhaps on any other. I have wanted to know if they felt the same malaise at approaching it as I have felt. And I have found the same uneasiness in the writings of many men. They all acknowledge that they have within them the deep abyss of sin. They all confess that they have been brought up out of the pit and that their feet have been placed upon the rock and that they have the new song in their hearts. But they all let us see that their eyes 
sometimes turn back to the abyss and that their carnal minds caress, at least from afar, some of the things from which they have been most certainly redeemed and for which there is abundant victory promised. I do not speak of those writers more or less on the fringes of Christendom who have pretended that they have reached the stage of sinless perfection. God himself has authorized us to conclude that they deceive themselves. Any man who believes that he has gotten over sin deceives himself. The most terrible thing about their doctrine, the doctrine of the eradication of the old nature, is that since they believe that they have no sin, they reach the practical conclusion that what they do is not sin. And this, of course, is a worse sin than the actual commission of some act of transgression. But in the writings of the men who have been most famed for godliness of life, there has always been an undercurrent of acknowledgement of the warfare that characterizes the Christian life. And we turn to those whose deeds have been the most noble because we find in them not only the conflict, but also a note of victory, like that which is recorded of Gideon. He came to the Jordan and passed over. We read in Judges 8, 4, he and the 300 men that were with him, faint yet pursuing, faint yet pursuing. And it is in this spirit that we go on pursuing. Alexander McLaren introduces his own exposition of the text on the warring queens by this interesting remark. I am afraid that this text will sound to some of you rather unpromising. It is full of well-worn terms, sin, death, grace, righteousness, eternal life, which suggest dry theology if they suggest anything. But when they welled up from the apostles' glowing heart, they were like a fiery lava stream. But the stream has cooled, and to a good many of us, they seem as barren and sterile as the long-ago cast-out coils of lava on the side of a quiescent volcano. They are so well-worn and familiar to our ears that they create but vague conceptions in our minds, and they seem to many of us to be far away from having a bearing upon our daily lives. But you much mistake Paul if you take him to be a mere theological writer. He is that, of course, but he is an earnest evangelist, trying to draw men to love and trust in Jesus Christ. And his writings, however old-fashioned and doctrinally hard they may seem to you, are all throbbing with life, instinct with truths that belong to all ages and places, and which fit close to every one of us. That is the point of view which we must take in studying these verses. If we spin these truths as theological webs, they will but accent the mustiness of tinder, dry minds, that can argue a doctrinal point without seeing it root and flower in warm life. Truth is not a eunuch to preside over a sterile household. Truth is a bridegroom, and the true Christian life must be fruitful. All that can be said about a happy household can be said of the heart and life where the grace of God really reigns in righteousness. Lo, we read in Psalm 127, speaking of a happy family, Lo, children are an heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak 
with the enemies in the gate. And thus it is with the Christian that knows the power of joy in his life, of strength to overcome sin. In one respect, the most important word in the last verse of the fifth chapter of Romans is the first word, that. We must understand it as a word of great purpose. It could well be translated so that or in order that. In fact, most of the modern translators have given this idea. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness. Goodspeed reads it, but greatly as sin multiplied, God's mercy has far surpassed it, so that just as sin had reigned through death, mercy might reign through uprightness. The confraternity edition of the Roman Catholic Church translates it, but where the offense has abounded, grace has abounded yet more, so that as sin has reigned unto death, so also grace may reign by justice. One of the principal purposes of grace is the production of the reign of life. For the last time, the apostle reminds us that sin has been in the world as a despot, ruling authoritatively as a tyrant. Sin and death do not ask their subjects to bow before them. They reign in force over subjects who flee from the fruit of sin and seek to postpone the physical death as long as possible. Time and again, the truth has been stressed that death reigns. Death secured this control over mankind by means of sin and thus brought humanity under its power. Death, physical and spiritual, has the human race in an iron grip, and it is the real ruler. Death has been on the throne and has been using all its power with terrifying effects. The contrast that is set forth here must not be confused with the conflict which shall be examined in some detail in our future studies. There is a sense in which grace already reigns, and that is the sense that is before us in these closing moments. Grace already reigns in a true believer. That truth which passes all description, but which so many of us know, is that we have been joined to Christ, and that even now we possess eternal life. Death no longer reigns in any believer in Christ so far as his position is concerned. Perhaps the best way to draw the analogy is by taking the physical life of Lazarus and seeing what happened to him and applying that truth to our own spiritual life. Lazarus grew sick and died, and his body was quickly wrapped in linen and placed in a cave with a stone rolled in front of the door to keep out the hyenas and jackals which would have feasted on the decomposing flesh. No doubt whatsoever is left about the state and nature of that death. Physical death reigned in the cadaver of Lazarus. The laws of decomposition and decay had carried on their awful work until Martha expostulated against any thought of removing the stone from the door. Lord, by this time he stinketh, was her cry, seeking to deter him from his purpose. Such is the state of our spiritual being. The laws of sin and death have worked upon us individually and as a society until the human race is held in this great thrall of sin. We have only to read the news in the headlines to see the necessity for the constant formation of investigating committees by the Congress in order to understand how death holds our civilization in its grip. Narcotics among children, 
warfare among nations, serious discussion of extermination of great masses of the human race by the use of atomic power, bacteria, chemical poisons, and the like. All of these display all too vividly the corruption that is in the body of the human race. And then suddenly in the midst of the graveyard, the Lord Jesus appears. He dies upon the cross in order to establish the righteous basis for what he is about to do. Then in his own resurrection, he exercises the power of resurrection for us who believe in his grace alone. The mighty call of salvation is given. Lazarus, come forth. Out from the reign of death, there comes the glorious host of the redeemed. Spiritual life reigns where once spiritual death reigned. The body of Lazarus is alive, though it is still bound in the grave clothes of the tomb. It is thus that our spiritual beings are alive, even though they are still bound with the grave clothes of our old nature. It is not until the sixth chapter of Romans that we shall be occupied with cutting away the garments which yet bear the smell of their contact with us in our natural condition. But already I can cry out with all the joy of the doctrine of free grace that life now reigns in the believer, even though his renewed nostrils are keenly aware of the scent of death that lingers in his garments. The life that was in Lazarus was real. The spiritual life that is in every believer is just as real in its sphere. I am alive in Christ. Spiritual death does not have the slightest empire over me henceforth and forever. I once was an outcast, a stranger on earth, a sinner by choice and an alien by birth, but now I have been made alive in Christ. My life is as real as my death. There is a sense in which a saved person may know the present possession of eternal life. He need not look, yea, he must not look at the spotted grave clothes. He must not allow the odor of the garments to deaden the perfume of the sweet savor that has gone up from the cross of Christ to God in behalf of our lost condition. Once more, we stress the great truth that justification must not be lessened by involving it with sanctification. The great truth of holiness will come in due course into detailed scrutiny. But now we are still occupied with the canceling out of the reign of death by the death and life of Christ in grace, so that the reign of life might take the throne, and we will not lessen in one iota the full force of the truth which is meant here. In salvation, Christ has spoken the resurrection word. When the day comes in the future when our physical bodies are raised from the dead and those who have been born again shall know their new spirits united to new bodies in the eternal resurrection of our bodies, it will not be more real than that which is already ours in our resurrection unto spiritual life in Christ. Indeed, the physical resurrection is nonsense apart from the fact of our text that by superabounding grace, all who believe in Christ have been transferred out of death and into life and have been delivered from the power of darkness and translated into the kingdom of God's dear Son. The reason why all of these marvelous statements are put in the past tense is that God considers the reign of death to be over forever. 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. We stand in life, in unchangeable, everlasting life, absolutely made complete in Christ. Death did not abdicate. Death was conquered. The dynasty of death did not relinquish its control over the believers with any thought of kindness. Death fought down the whole road to the cross of Christ, where the Son of God took death in his own hands and throttled it, abolishing its reigning control over his own, and established us in life and life in us. Grace, grace now reigns, even though death seeks to steal the inheritance for some of her children. And it is when we understand this that grace reigns that we can begin to think about taking off the old rags from our new body of life and adorning ourselves with righteousness and true holiness in Christ. And our God, we pray thee that the Holy Spirit shall take the word to each heart in this hour and use it for thy purpose. In Jesus' name, amen. Do not let yourself be governed by sin, defeat, and despair. You can find joy, peace, and fulfillment by allowing Jesus Christ and the abundant grace of God to rule and reign in every area of your life. We hope you have benefited from today's message by Dr. Barnhouse entitled, The Reign of Grace. Now you can listen to additional Bible teaching by the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse via the internet by visiting the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals website at AllianceNet.org. An audio copy of today's teaching is available by calling us toll-free 1-800-488-1888. Today's message again is entitled, The Reign of Grace, or simply request message number R5-51. We would also like to make available to you a free copy of our booklet entitled, Anxiety and Depression. So many people, even Christians, become overwhelmed by life's problems and difficulties and fall into a pit of anxiety and depression. This free booklet will help you confront emotional distress with glorious gospel truth. Jesus is able and willing to lift you from the depths of despair into the assurance of His love and a life of spiritual peace. Are you struggling to find emotional and mental health and wholeness? Ask for your free copy of Anxiety and Depression when you call or write. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is the radio ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We exist to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades and even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching materials which will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible comes to you through the generous gifts of our listeners. If you have benefited from this broadcast and would like it to continue, please prayerfully consider a donation to help us keep this ministry on the air. For more information or to make a contribution to support and further our work, please contact us by writing Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103. Call toll-free 1-800-488-1888 or visit us online at AllianceNet.org. Be sure to ask for a free updated resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, daily devotionals, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians, including Donald Gray Barnhouse, James Montgomery Boyce, Michael Horton, and Martin Lloyd-Jones. Then join us again next time for more classic teaching on Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible.